Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode eight of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we're going to be talking about the United States in the post-Cold War period, and we also had a super cool interview with New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Andrew Basevich. But before we get to that, I definitely wanted to do some background on the end of the Cold War, because it's important to understanding kind of the United States and the role that the United States has played in the last 30 years in the world. Now, what's super interesting, something that we talked about with Dr. Basevich was the shift of the Cold War from an ideological battle between communism and capitalism in the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, but it's really under Richard Nixon that the Cold War is reframed into more of a geopolitical battle rather than an ideological one. Um, Dr. Basevich talked about how this in turn prolonged the conflict uh, because it does in fact shift. But one of the key things that does happen, and really this starts in the 70s with Richard Nixon's state visit to China, which essentially 360 relations between uh, the China and the United States, which had always been um, at odds because obviously starting with the Chinese Civil War, where the country fell under communism, and then the Korean War that followed in 1950-1953, where the United States and China were engaged in that conflict. So, and then obviously the um, the different agreements that the Soviet Union and China had just in terms of, and um, similarities that they had with communism and such. But it's really in this period that, uh, you know, or China and the Soviet Union really, they didn't get along all that great, um, specifically because I think the Chinese felt that they were looked down upon by the Soviet Union, and they didn't really appreciate that. But there was also internal issues um, in both countries, really, that kind of set them on different paths. Um, I think one of the key things is China sort of recognized the issues surrounding, you know, communism and socialism and the problem of having total control of every single aspect of society and the government. It just, it's not very viable. So, you know, Richard Nixon's state visit in 1970, in the 73, I believe was when it was. No, he would have, it was early 70s. Regardless, this completely changes the narrative from, you know, the China and U.S. being um, enemies through the Cold War to almost being on friendlier terms. Um, and really, it's in the 1980s that China begins to liberalize and much of its economy in order to overcome some of the deficiencies that came along with the socialist policies that had been uh, developed under Mao and some of the other leaders that followed him. So this is really important because one of the critical allies in Asia for the Soviet Union was China, and this begins to change as there, as uh China begins to liberalize more of its economy, and the United States and China become closer um, through the capitalist policies that both countries obviously have. So with that, the Soviet Union really, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, really began to decline across the board, mostly due to internal issues because of the challenges that came you know, with pursuing these socialist policies, um, really in every single country that uh, the Soviet Union influenced or, um, you know, controlled, really. I mean, the Soviet Union, essentially, the Soviet Union had proxy states pretty much from East Germany all the way to the Soviet Union. Um, countries today like Poland and Ukraine and the Baltic states, 
um, and Hungary, pretty much all of those countries were essentially proxy states of the Soviet Union, which is important because it's really where internal issues in these proxy states begin to affect Soviet Union policies. And this really starts in the 1980s. Um, specifically in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, where uh, there were brief uprisings before they were crushed. But it was fairly obvious that the, the movement of communism was sort of unraveling, and it sort of begins to accelerate in the late 80s. Um, and it's really under Mikhail Gorbachev, or Gorbachev, who became prime minister in, I believe, 1986 was when he started. His goal was to really reform and reshape the Soviet Union because he recognized that the current path that the Soviet Union was on was not viable. And he sort of saw how, you know, China had be, been able to come successful by changing some of these policies, but there were plenty of hardliners in the communist government that didn't want to go along with this. Um, and there was a belief that the United States was somehow, you know, influencing him and trying to overthrow the, you know, Soviet government, which wasn't the case. But it's really under Ronald Reagan and Miguel Gorbachev that the Cold War pretty much ends in 1991 with the fall of the Soviet Union and the secession of pretty much all the proxy states that the Soviet Union controlled. Now I can do an entire episode on, you know, just the end of the Cold War, but we'll shift the United States because obviously that's the majority of this episode. So the United, uh, the Cold War technically ends in 1991 and the United States um, and its allies have triumphed, you know, liberal, um, you know, social values and liberal democracy triumphed and the United States was the sole superpower in the world. So the United States really had an opportunity to project an influence in places that it normally would have, whether that was Eastern Europe, um, in Asia, and Africa, all these different places that now really, you know, weren't under the influence of the Soviet Union. And we see this almost from the start, specifically just before the Cold War ends in 1989, when the United States intervenes in Panama um, to overthrow the dictator Manuel Noriega, who had actually been allied with the United States um, because he had fought against the communists in his own country. Um, so that was one of the first interventions that happens. Um, another thing that also happens in 1993 was the American intervention in Somalia, and then I believe it was 1995-1996 was the U.S. intervention in Kosovo. Um, so pretty much from the start, the United States began, on top of projecting this liberal economic system across the world, there's also an increased military interventionist policies that get pursued under various presidents. This wasn't limited to Republican Democrat because with, you know, uh, the first George W. Bush, you know, he led the effort in uh, the Persian Gulf War um, in Panama. And then obviously with uh, Bill Clinton, the 1995-1996 intervention in Kosovo. So it's really from the start that the United States goes down this military interventionist route, and then it exponentially increases with 9-11, which sort of shifts the focus to the Middle East, and specifically interventionist wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which, as we all know, were poorly executed. But I think the big root of this, and what Dr. Basevich also mentioned, was the level of overconfidence, and I think naive, naive, 
the people in the government are naive about the ability to truly, you know, project liberal and economic values across the world. You know, it takes time to do that. And using military force to do that doesn't always really end well. So it's really through these different policies that the United States sort of goes down this road where we are today, where it seems like people in both parties really are dissatisfied with the kind of global liberal order that the United States created after the Cold War. Um, you know, specifically with jobs leaving the country uh, to places like China and Mexico, um, with having spending so much on the military and having all these military bases across the world. There's a real sense that the United States is sort of withdrawing. I mean, I guess it's interesting. Obviously, Donald Trump always talks about leaving NATO and scrapping all these trade agreements and stuff. But for the most part, and as Dr. Basevich also mentions, the quote unquote deep state sort of keeps those agreements in place. I mean, I guess it's interesting to see how both parties, both kind of on the extreme ends of the left and right, have become super satisfied with kind of the status quo. Um, you know, the the Republican Party of George, you know, W. Bush and Reagan are completely different from the, you know, Republican Party now under Donald Trump, you know, non-interventionist, um, no free trade, um, all these different things that would be completely different from, you know, 1980, traditional 1980s, you know, Republicanism, but also on the Democratic side of things, obviously, the Democratic Party has been mostly non-interventionist for the most part, but I mean, obviously, you look at the the presidency of Barack Obama, those things didn't necessarily go away. And as we kind of see right now with the Democratic primary is these kind of two, um, you know, part or not obviously single party, but these two groups within the party that are, you know, pretty different in terms of kind of the progressive wing of the party and the more moderate wing of the party. But I mean, it'll be interesting to see as the going forward, how this is going to affect the election, but also kind of U.S. policy across the globe. Um, and with that, we'll get into uh, the interview, which was super informative and um, great to listen to one, uh, in my opinion, one of the best experts on the United States in the post-Cold War world. Today's podcast, we're lucky to welcome on Dr. Andrew Basevich, who is currently a professor at Boston University and a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He received his Ph.D. in American Diplomatic History from Princeton University. He is also the author of New York Times bestselling books, The Limits of Power, The End of American Exceptionalism, Washington Rules, America's Path to Permanent War. And his latest book is The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Basevich. Thank you very much. Um, so kind of just start off with um, broader questions. Um, what is your kind of favorite part of whether it's uh, political science or history, the research and talk about? Uh, why is it your favorite and why have you focused so much on the kind of American experience after the Cold War? Well, I'm not a political scientist. I'm a historian. I was trained as a historian. And uh, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, my, my initial specialty was the history of American foreign policy. And uh, early on, my focus was on really the, broadly speaking, the progressive era. In other words, from roughly the Spanish-American War uh, up to uh, the Depression, let's say. Uh, but 
when I got out of the army in 1992, which was right after the Cold War ended, I was I was drawn to the question of what would be the thrust of U.S. policy after the Cold War, and uh, what I saw was, uh, to my mind, quite troubling. Uh, in particular, what I saw was a radical misunderstanding and misuse of American military power. And so that became an abiding interest of mine and led to a series of books, a couple of which you you mentioned in the intro. So I guess in, in simplest terms, I, I it was my sense that when the Cold War ended, uh, the political establishment, particularly those concerned with foreign policy, really went off the rails and created all kinds of problems for our country and for others. And that's what I thought I should write about. Awesome. So um, I kind of want to follow up. Um, what are some of the challenges that you have encountered kind of, while well, kind of researching uh, this period? Well, the biggest challenge is the uh, the limited amount of of evidence that's available. Uh-huh. You know, when I wrote my dissertation, uh, like 40, 40 or so years ago, <laughs> uh, I was able to access documents uh, in the National Archives, in the Library of Congress, uh, in in collections of private papers of the people, of some of the people I was writing about. So I, I had as complete a uh, array of evidence. Uh, it wasn't, obviously nothing is complete, uh, but I had an abundance of evidence. Uh, and when you're writing about contemporary matters, uh, the amount of information you have is limited because all those, all those classified documents uh, of what uh, you know, Secretary Pence uh, says to the National Security Advisor are simply not available for you to, to uh, to consult, so you, 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 you tell the story to the best of your ability, but you're telling the story using a, a limited database, and you have to sort of be cognizant of that fact. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to um, switch gears a little bit to kind of the end of the Cold War, um, <clears throat> but you kind of mentioned at the beginning of your book how Vietnam was kind of the dividing event of your generation. Do you think that's kind of been the start of this polarization between left and ref, left and this kind of divide between what America should be doing um, across the globe or focusing more on domestic policies? No, not at all. I mean, I think that if you look at uh, sort of the, I don't know if I should call them turning points, but sort of the, uh, the, the, the most dramatic episodes in the history of American statecraft, uh, there is almost always a, a sharp divide uh, in terms of public opinion. Uh, I mean, a very good example of that would be the Spanish-American War of 1898 and its aftermath. This is an episode about which Americans today know next to nothing, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was a very important historical moment as American imperialism took on a new shape uh, and and 
American power now extended well beyond North America itself. Big, big example of this was, of course, the decision to annex the Philippines, to convert the Philippines into an American colony on, on the far west, west Pacific. This mm -hmm. caused an enormous controversy and debate uh, within the United States between people who were called imperialists and people who were called uh, anti-imperialists. And my mm -hmm. sense is that this kind of debate uh, happens over and over again. Uh, the debate over whether or not to enter into the First World War, the debate over whether to ratify the Versailles Treaty after the war, uh, the debate over whether or not to enter World War II, a sharp debate after World War II relating to what should be U.S. policy, uh, the, the extent to which we should continue to be involved, for example, in Europe. So yes, there was a very sharp debate in the 1960s caused by Vietnam, but by no means was that the first time that this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, division occurred. It's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> something that you also mentioned, which I thought was interesting, uh, was kind of Richard Nixon's um, reframing of the Cold War. Um, how did Nixon kind of reframe the Cold War? And you kind of mentioned how it perpetuated the conflict. And how did the, his reframing end up doing so? Well, the, the, the Cold War had uh, many uh, dimensions uh, and expressed itself in many ways, found, found different expressions in American politics. But I think that the most important expression in, from the late 40s uh, through the 1950s and well into the 1960s was that this was an ideological con, uh, conflict, that the free world, which we claim to lead, uh, was opposing communism, world communism, and that was, that was perceived to be a monolith uh, directed uh, from the Kremlin. And, and, and in the context of that monolith, it was perceived that the People's Republic of China was basically a pawn or a satellite of the Soviet Union. This was utterly misguided and wrong, uh, but, but into the 1960s, this notion that of the West against the communist world uh, held, held purchase. Uh, and what Nixon did was to demolish the notion of the Cold War as an ideological uh, contest and to transform it into a geopolitical one. And he did that mm -hmm. by his opening to China, uh, by, by making China not an ally, uh, but certainly at least to a, similar, a limited degree, a partner uh, in opposing uh, the, the, the Soviet Union. Uh, so this was a radical sort of change in, in what, what we perceived the Cold War to be about. Uh, and it's, it's uh, probably one of the most important uh, aspects of Nixon's legacy. It's very interesting. <clears throat> so on top of obviously Nixon visit re and reframing the Cold War, um, what were some of the other key events that kind of led um, to the fall of the Soviet Union and the uh, Warsaw Pact? Well, I think the most important is that uh, was the failure of, of, of Soviet communism. I mean, mm -hmm. this was the, the revolution of 1917, uh, which had universal aspirations from the very outset, 
was was intended to create a a new society uh, based on Marxist-Leninist principles that would outperform uh, capitalism, uh, and it did not do so. I mean, it it failed to do so in the most concrete uh, and material sense. It it failed to provide a decent life uh, for the people of the Soviet Union. Communism failed to provide a decent life uh, for the people of the Soviet Empire, for example, in in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, the, the, the people of the Soviet Union and of the Soviet Empire uh, found themselves denied all kinds of basic freedoms, and they did not receive in return uh, the material benefits that were promised. As a consequence of that, uh, the communism basically forfeited any claim to legitimacy. So why did the Cold War end when it did? It ended because uh, of the rot uh, that had occurred in the Soviet Union and elsewhere in the Soviet uh, in the Soviet Empire that turned out to be simply uh, they they could not contain uh, and so the system collapsed. That was so. In other words, it collapsed for mostly for internal reasons, not because of anything that we or the West did. Ah, uh, so you <clears throat> kind of answered my next question. Uh, so we can skip that. Um, but um, obviously, 1991. Um, the Cold War ends, the Soviet Union ends. Uh, what kind of advantages did the United States enjoy after the Cold War? Well, the, when the Cold War ended, the United States had the advantage of a, of a, of a system uh, that had uh, very real, very substantial legitimacy. Uh, by and large, the American people believed in the American way. Uh, that system uh, had, uh, over the pr prior several decades, produced a very substantial uh, material prosperity, to put it mildly, not equally shared by the American people, uh, but enough to sustain the impression uh, that whereas the Soviet system didn't work, ours did work. Uh, and that conviction then created a certain amount of optimism. Uh, going forward from the Cold War, uh, that our system, we persuaded ourselves, uh, was going to prevail everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so to follow up, what were kind of the actual policies that the United States wanted to pursue after the Cold War, whether it was economically, militarily, or politically? Um, was there a system or idea created that this is the way that we should do things in this new world where the United States is the only superpower. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the, I think the central idea, uh, was a belief in, uh, capitalism, mm -hmm. uh, neoliberal globalization, uh, that our system of economy, uh, held the, the potential, to create unprecedented wealth in which all would share, although in which we would share more than others. Uh, so, so a belief in capitalism uh, wasn't new, uh, but I think the end of the Cold War affirmed the conviction that capitalism was the only way to organize a successful society. Complementing that was a belief in American military superiority. I, I should say American military supremacy. 
uh, a conviction, particularly reinforced by the Gulf War of 1991, that we had achieved mastery of war. And therefore, going forward, uh, no, no one could, could challenge us militarily. And, and therefore, that, that American military power would, would serve as an instrument or a tool of influence that would enable us to not only promote our economic system, but also to promote our values. Do you think this was something that happened immediately after the Cold War, this idea of projecting kind of American influence, uh, whether kind of militarily, economically, or, um, or was this something that took time to take place? Well, it started to happen quickly. I mean, we, we have totally forgotten the George Herbert Walker Bush intervention in Panama in December of 1989, just weeks after the fall of the Berlin Wall. But in a sense, that uh, that set a precedent. You know, here we could uh, use our forces to overthrow our government, to install a different regime uh, with uh, only minimal cost uh, 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 on our part. Uh, I think that that uh, sort of set in motion uh, a, a preference for armed intervention that then evolved during the Clinton years, certainly kicked into high gear after 9-11 and has you know, brought us to the present moment where we more or less uh, find ourselves permanently at war. Mm -hmm. um, something I thought that you mentioned that was interesting in your book was this idea of Vietnam syndrome or the reluctance to kind of use military power. Uh, why do you think that sort of changed? Was that purely because of the end of the Cold War um, or was it the success in places like Panama and during the first Gulf War that created this idea that, yeah, we can use our military supremacy to dominate global affairs? Well, I think I think the end of the Cold War probably was the was the crucial sort of uh, uh, moment that uh, buried the Vietnam syndrome. Uh, but uh, over the course of the previous decade or so, uh, the United States had uh, already begun to forget whatever the lessons of Vietnam supposedly were. So the beginnings of interventionism uh, began during the Ronald Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Do you think that kind of winning the Cold War created a degree of overconfidence within both like the military and the government that they could dominate global affairs, like no matter where it was, whatever it was. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. No, no question about it. Um, and then something else that you kind of mentioned in your books were kind of four or in your book, four key elements in kind of the post cold war United States, which was globalization, global leadership, freedom and presidential supremacy. Um, can you kind of explain why you chose these four elements and why they're important? Well, I mean, I was trying to figure out what, what, were, what were the abiding themes of uh, really the, abide, the abiding claims, I guess, uh, that shaped American behavior and you know, other people would read the, the evidence differently, but the way I read the evidence, those are the four things that that stood out and, and seemed to uh, demand recognition. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, so I was just wondering in terms of like each specific element, I didn't have a specific question for each, but in terms of, for example, globalization, 
What does it does this look like in terms of was it purely an economic initiative to promote this kind of neoliberal capitalist system um, across the globe, or was it to project <clears throat> military power? Um, well, I think the yeah. key is that they fit all these things fit together. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, a belief in neoliberal globalization and a belief in American military supremacy and a conviction that we have. Uh, radically define the meaning of individual freedom and uh, confidence in the president to serve as kind of a global emperor. Uh, all of these things interacted, they reinforced one another. Uh, and uh, you know, the way I read the events of the 90s and of the early 2000s, uh, that seemed to be uh, very much the case. Uh-huh. Um, another like uh, interesting element was this idea of presidential supremacy, which something yeah. I hadn't really thought about. Can you kind of explain how you came to the conclusion of presidential supremacy and what exactly that looks like? I don't think it's like, this is a particularly original idea with me. I mean, it seems to me that if we look at the American political system at the <clears throat> national level, uh, going back to the uh, Great Depression and the beginning of the New Deal as the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt, there was this widespread tendency to look to the White House and the man in the White House for solutions to big problems. It was, it was the man in the White House who was going to ensure prosperity. It was the man in the White House who was going to keep us safe. It was the man in the White House who was going to lead the way in enlarging our understanding of freedom and what freedom entails. Uh, So I think this really kicked into high gear uh, with the long presidency of Franklin Roosevelt. And I think it was reinforced, strongly reinforced uh, by the the supposed requirements of the the Cold War. Uh, And all this together uh, ends up leading to the Congress forfeiting its uh, its role as a co-equal branch of government. Uh, and we, I think we've seen that in, in any number of ways. The Congress defers, you know, the, the Congress squabbles, the, the Congress uh, criticizes, uh, members of Congress speechify. Uh, but in terms of collective action, uh, that will contribute to the common good or action that will uh, curb the excesses of the president. Uh, that, that usually, there are exceptions, but, but, but only rarely, uh, rarely happens. And so we ended up with a, a political system that was skewed uh, in ways that I think would have shocked the framers of the Constitution, who, by the way, Viewed the viewed the executive branch as as the as the primary uh, element of our government. Uh, said Very. executive legislative branch legislative branch. Uh huh. Um, so s- to switch gears a little bit, um, what were were there any key events or presidents or people that you encountered in your research that made you conclude that yep that was the moment that the United States failed? Um, in its role as the global superpower, or do you think it was kind of a chain 
of events starting with the end of the Cold War that has kind of led us to this point? Yeah, it's always, I mean, it's always a chain of events. I mean, I, 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 you know, tend not to think that the actions of particular individuals uh, are determinant. I think that individuals respond to circumstances and, 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 and forces. Uh, they are not so much independent actors as they are uh, they're acted upon in a way. So I don't think there's any one particular moment. I suppose that uh, as, we, as we look back, uh, the 9-11 attacks uh, had a particularly sharp influence, really you know, prompted <coughs> from the political establishment a conviction uh-huh. that... Uh, the United States is now called upon to use its power in a very aggressive way, uh, not not simply as a response to 9/11 itself, but as a an approach to ensuring that events like 9/11 would never happen again. And George W. Bush responded to this this mood, this this temperament, uh, in in promulgating the the Bush Doctrine of Preventive War in in invading. Iraq, which had nothing to do with with 9/11, uh, and in in, uh, in 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 declaring a freedom agenda, uh, in going after an axis of evil, uh, I think in many respects Bush was simply a mouthpiece here, uh, expressing sentiments that uh, actually had deeper roots. Mm, so that kind of segues into my next question, which was about the kind of the freedom agenda and how you kind of mentioned how it. In your view, it was kind of this reframing of American imperialism. Why do you think kind of the freedom agenda has been problematic? And do you think if 9-11 hadn't occurred that we wouldn't be as militaristic as we are? Or do you think um, it goes before that? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, Bush said before 9-11 that he, so he favored what he called a humble foreign policy had 9-11 not have occurred how would that humble foreign policy have found expression it's impossible for us to say all we know is that because 9-11 happened the notion of humility uh, was was utterly uh, forgotten uh, as he embarked upon this 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 what he called at one point a crusade uh, to pursue his his freedom agenda Mm -hmm. Um, So another kind of element that I found interesting in the kind of post-Cold War era has been our relationship with Russia. Um, Do you think the kind of eastward expansion of NATO has hurt our ability to successively integrate Russia as kind of like we have with a lot of other former Soviet satellite states? Well, we're we're not trying to integrate Russia. Uh, I think it would be folly to think that that were that was feasible, but certainly the eastward expansion of NATO was one of the most important things that's happened in the past uh, forty years or so. And to to offer a judgment was it a good idea or a bad idea is not easy, because mm-hmm. if you look from the point of view of the former. Uh, Soviet satellites and some of the former Soviet republics, like the Baltic republics, uh, 
NATO expansion has been a boon. It has provided security guarantees to those countries as they have made the transition from uh, communism to democratic capitalism. So it has been a great benefit uh, to a variety of countries in Eastern Europe. At the same time, uh, it has posed a threat uh, to Russian security and therefore has induced a hostile response from, from Russia. Uh, and we see that hostile response in, in all kinds of places, in, in all kinds of, of ways. So the big question, I think, and it's, it's difficult to answer is, was there a way in the aftermath of the Cold War to put U.S.-Russian relations on a, a footing that was harmonious? Uh, and I don't, I don't know that I have an opinion about that. All I know is that what we did ensured that that relationship would not be harmonious, indeed would be a, a hostile one, and that's what we have today. Mm -hmm. um, so to kind of switch to more modern questions or stuff happening now, um, you kind of talked a lot about like the, uh, the political parties, uh, both Republican and Democrat, and the problems they face. Um, do you think that um, being the global leader, the sole superpower, projecting um, our military, economic, and uh, political values kind of across the globe has helped, has contributed to this polarization of politics today? Well, it has in the sense that it didn't work. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, that uh, the, the, the promise of globalization that would result in prosperity for all uh, has proven false. We now have grotesque economic inequality and the economic inequality was one factor, not the only factor, was one factor contributing to uh, the election of Donald Trump and to uh, the, the political polarization that we, that we see today. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned uh, economic inequality um, and mentioned in your book that you're invited to work on foreign policy for the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016, but never heard back. Um, was your perception of this that the Sanders campaign was not going to focus on foreign policy at all? And do you think this was bad? Or do you think this is kind of just one of the elements that has come as a result of people becoming dissatisfied with America being the global leader? Well, I, 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 I mean, you'd have to ask Senator Sanders, I guess. But I mean, my impression was that in 2016, he uh, the focus of his campaign was not on uh, foreign policy. He didn't have much to say about foreign policy. I was not offended that that one phone call that led to no particular follow-up, uh, but he wasn't about foreign policy. Now, here in 2020, he's paid somewhat more attention to foreign policy, but to tell you the truth, not a heck of a lot. Uh, and my guess is that the reason his campaign hasn't paid much attention to foreign policy it's because the American people uh, don't care much about foreign policy uh, these days. Mm -hmm. Now they may they may come to care more uh, in the as, as we confront the uh, uh, coronavirus outbreak, mm -hmm. uh, which is you know foreign matters uh, reaching our shores in a big in a big way. Uh, but but by and large, the the American politics, you know what. What, what people care about and therefore what 
politicians respond to. Mm-hmm. Foreign policy has been an afterthought. Um, another person you mentioned before and in your book uh, was Donald Trump. Um, what do you think has kind of led to the rise of Trump? Uh, do you think it's a result of kind of Americans becoming dissatisfied with the status quo of being the world's policemen? Um, or do you think there are other events or policies that have led to Donald Trump's presidency? Yeah, the, basic, the basic argument of my book is that the, the ideas that shaped U.S. policy after the Cold War, and we've ticked off some of them, failed, uh, failed in a big way. Uh, these are ideas we should emphasize are embraced by the entire political mainstream, Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, and I think by 2016, a sufficient number of Americans were sufficiently fed up uh, that they decided to repudiate that that political con- that post Cold War political consensus, and they mm-hmm. did it by electing a guy who said he was going to drain the swamp, and said he was mm-hmm. going to make America great again, which of course implicitly acknowledged that America was not great. Whether or not that's true or not, it was it was a message that resonated with large numbers of of people, and so they put him into office despite his his manifest, uh, you know, lack of any qualifications to be president. Uh Uh-huh. Another aspect that I think has been interesting was, you know, Trump's rhetoric about pulling out of all these alliances and becoming isolated. But for the most part, that hasn't happened. Why do you think that we're still so entrenched in these alliances and wars? Do you think it's this bureaucracy that was created after the Cold War, or um, is there something else to it? Yeah, so this gets to the so-called deep state. Uh, That is to say that there is a national security apparatus that's sort of uh, committed to the status quo. And I think there's something to that. Uh, You know, even when Trump in his impulsive way has uh, tried to, for example, withdraw troops, U.S. troops from Syria, uh, he's, he's met all kinds of resistance. Uh, so, yeah, there is an establishment that uh, is deeply invested in the status quo. Uh, and that doesn't mean that, that they can't be overcome, but it would take uh, determination, consistency, uh, follow through, uh, qualities that Donald Trump doesn't particularly exhibit. You know, his, uh, he's impulsive, uh, he's inconsistent. He doesn't seem to have much of a work ethic. Uh, and so although he's made some enormous uh, promises of change, most of that hasn't come to pass. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe a follow-up question would be, what do you think it would take to kind of change the status quo? Um, because obviously the attitudes of many Americans um, towards foreign policy and towards the way we do things um, has changed drastically. Um, how long do you think it would take for that to translate to our government and to our military to kind of change the way that we do things across the globe? Yeah, probably a couple decades. I mean, it's a it's a matter of education. It's a matter of people coming to see the world and to see our role in the world in a different way, uh, coming to recognize that the post-Cold War moment when we thought we were in charge Uh, to recognize that that moment has now ended. You know, we're in a new world. The new world is multipolar. It's not unipolar. 
the new world is facing a new set of challenges, climate change being an example, uh, that to, to which the old sort of priorities and routines uh, are not applicable. And I, I do think that there's, uh, at least in the background, uh, there's a com conversation uh, that is uh, perhaps in its early stages, but is, is, is ongoing. Uh, and that conversation could bring about uh, new perceptions of our role in the world and how the world works. But that hasn't happened yet. Uh, it does not appear that that will happen, uh, you know, as a result of the, of the current uh, uh, presidential election. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, with kind of the rise of China um, and their growing influence across the globe, do you think this has kind of signaled the end of the United States being able to claim its status as the only global superpower? And you think that China's increasing influence is going to change um, how we do things across the globe? Um, well, I hope it does. Uh, but I mean, uh, it, I think it's also important not to sort of buy into the notion that we're into a new bipolar era. That is to say that uh, much like the Cold War, where we had uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, in a sense, facing off, that now we're entering an era where it's going to be the U.S. and the People's Republic of China. I, th I think it's likely to be more complicated and messier than that. I think we're going to be in a multipolar world in which there are going to be several players whose interests are going to have to be taken into uh, account, that, that, that it's not going to break out into a, a China-led block and a U.S.-led block uh, opposing one another. That there's going to be multiple blocks. And so the, the, the complexities of ensuring some stability on a global basis is going to be, uh, it's going, it's going to be a daunting proposition. Mm -hmm. uh, so to kind of ask some concluding questions, you mentioned in your book uh, with a headline, Making Sense of the Senseless, um, what era in history do you think we're in right now with Trump in the White House and all the ups and downs that come with it and with so many other things happening um, in the, across the globe right now? Well, I think, I think the best phrase is multipolar. Uh, we are in a multipolar era. Uh, and, and maybe also multipolar, but also in a sense, uh, an, an an era in which we are, we are going to come to a deeper understanding of what globalization means. I mean, in the 1990s, it meant the export of capitalism on a, on a universal basis. I think now we appreciate that globalization uh, relates to common threats. Uh, again, in, in a perhaps in a small way, the coronavirus epidemic illustrates this. But in a broader sense, the problem of climate change uh, illustrates this. We're going to have to find a way. And I say we; it's not just the United States, but everybody else. We have to find a way to reconcile human existence with the needs of the planet. You know, can 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 we have a a developed world? based on consumption uh, and movement. Uh, that is also a world in which we live in harmony with nature. I think that is really the overarching question that we face, far overshadowing uh, 
you know, questions like the competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran or between Israel and the Palestinians uh, and on and on. I don't mean to dismiss those conflicts, but I think that, that in a sense, they are the uh, problems inherited from the prior century. Uh, in some respects, they are distractions from the problems of the present century. Mm -hmm. So what do you think kind of the legacy of the end of the Cold War is and how do you think that it's kind of shaped the United States over the last 30 years um, since it's ended? Yeah, too soon to tell, I think. I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, again, the, the significance of the Donald Trump presidency is to, uh, to demonstrate that the ideas shaping U.S policy and expectations after the Cold War turned out to be radically flawed. Uh, but it's very difficult for us to know what's going to come next. So the transition to a, a period when Trump has left the public stage is, I think, going to tell us a whole lot about uh, you know where, where we're headed over the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Mm -hmm. So the follow up, what do you think the role of the United States is going to look like over the next 10, 20 and 30 years as do you think it's going to be a more isolationist uh, role or do you think that we're going to try and, you know, take a role in leading the fight against climate change? Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do, although I would say that I think the, the term isolationism should be banished from from any discussion because it's okay. a it's, it's a fiction. Uh -huh. uh, I, th I would like to see uh, American leadership redefined so that it focused on what I just mentioned uh, a minute ago, that we would, we would demonstrate for others that there is a compatibility between our desires to exercise freedom on the one hand and the needs of the planet on the other hand. I think finding that sweet spot in the middle is going to be very, very difficult. Uh, but if I could, if I could sort of get us to focus on one thing, it would be that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think my last question is: What has been kind of the most interesting or rewarding aspect of your research, whether it's into this kind of uh, state of perpetual war, or kind of examining this um, post-United State or this United this the United States after the Cold War. Um, yeah, what has kind of been that for you? Well, I've enjoyed uh, the challenge of writing uh, because writing helps me sort out my own uh, views uh, on these matters. And then I enjoy, you know, talking to people like you or to different audiences about uh, my perspective on things and you know, get people's response and listen to their uh, disagreement. Uh, that, that's all. That's all been a quite a rewarding process. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, is there anything you'd like to add that you think, you know, any questions that I didn't ask you or anything that um, my listeners uh, could kind of know about this um, kind of era that we're in and the best ways to you know, educate themselves and make informed um, views or decisions, whether it's voting in this upcoming presidential election or the way they go about their lives in relation to climate change? Well, I'm not going to tell people how to live their lives. I think I, I, I will tell them they need to vote. 
but I, I just say that I think you asked some very good questions and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. Well, I definitely want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. I think this is going to be super informative for our listeners and understanding kind of the role of the United States and how kind of it's been shaped over the last 30 years after the Cold War. Um, and I'll definitely encourage them to read your newest book and definitely read all your books because you have some very informed opinions and, um, and one of the best out there, in my opinion. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay. Bye-bye. So we just had that super interesting interview with Dr. Basovich and probably one of my favorite interviews so far, the podcast, uh, specifically because I think it's interesting to see how the United States has been shaped 30 years after the Cold War and how we're seeing kind of a changing world. Um, you know, we had this bipolar world um, during the Cold War, pitting the U.S. and its allies against the Soviet Union and its allies um, to after the Cold War for probably right around now or to right around now in a unilateral world with the United States being the sole superpower. But I think as Dr. Bastovich mentions, we're sort of shifting to a multipolar world where we have different groups of countries vying for different geopolitical um, geopolitical goals, you know, across the world. But one of the things that he talks about is this sort of dissatisfaction. One of the things I'm fascinated by is this dissatisfaction with the United States and its role in the world. And that's really, really due to what seems to be a dissatisfaction among voters with A, the amount of money we spend, B, the economic the liberal economic values that you know we've pursued that have led to other countries to you know, rebuild their economies, uh, mimicking ours, but also with that comes some of the consequences such as jobs moving overseas, um, all of that. So when we're looking at kind of the United States in this post-Cold War world, I personally think there needs to be kind of an, a rethinking of kind of what U.S. grand strategy should look like, specifically to, you know, how much money we spend, the wars we get involved in, um, the money we get away, all of that. Uh, now, I think one of the interesting aspects is we sort of move in this bipolar world and something, or multipolar world is obviously climate change, which was something that um, Dr. Basovich briefly talked about. But we see this where you know countries are going to start vying, um, whether it's in Antarctica with all the uh, ice melting, you know, new shipping lanes are going to open up. So there are going to be disputes between, you know, Canada and the U.S. and Russia and Denmark and all these different countries. Um, but also how do, you know, third world countries respond to this? How do first world countries respond to this? Um, we're in this sort of, you know, brave new world where the United States isn't what it used to be, if we're being quite frank. And that's really due to policy decisions across a variety of presidential administrations that have sort of led, I think, people to this point where it's, you know, I don't think it, people want the United States to be the global policeman. Um, I think that's a term that doesn't really get used a lot, but I think is kind of true. I mean, if you look at the way the United States has sort of tried to, you know, project this um, liberal economic um, capitalist system, you know, across the globe. And although, in my opinion, I think it's 
been successful in many facets. It's also been a failure, specifically in the military side of things, just because military interventions just haven't really worked. I mean, maybe with outliers like the Persian Gulf, um, with maybe the initial invasion of Iraq, but all of this has sort of led us to this point where people across the country are dissatisfied with kind of the status quo. But I think one of the key things that, you know, I talked about before and during the interview is this sort of dissatisfaction across both countries with the way that we sort of do things. But that hasn't really changed because of kind of the, you know, the deep state that sort of exists, which I think is super interesting that, you know, he also, Dr. Basevich also talked about, you know, the presidential power and how, you know, the president has been able to gain so much power, whether that's through executive position, almost like the Congress has pretty much handed the president saying, you know, we don't want to take responsibility for certain policy decisions. I mean, I think the recent example specifically would be Syria and um, and whether the question to intervene there. And I think people were on the fence about it. And then when President Obama kind of said to the Republican Congress, okay, you know, take it up a vote. If you guys vote for it, then we'll do it. And they said, eh, no. Which is always interesting because I think it sort of shifts back, you know, to a more recent back, uh, example with um, the assassination of uh, General Soleimani uh, when, you know, pretty much both parties were like, oh, you know, we need – the Congress needs to be able to authorize war. But when you really get down to it, then those people say, well, you know, that's not really what we want to do. Um, so there's this – really interesting dynamic that's going on where the president has all this power, but there's also people around him that are, there's pe there's people like in government, uh, whether it's in state or the department of defense or the military that sort of keeps these alliances and military agreements and all this stuff going. So it's one of those things that I think with time is going to change. But at the end of the day, you know, people are dissatisfied and how long it will take for the United States to maybe not take such a large role in the world is, you know, is to be told, you know, for example, if Bernie Sanders would get elected. I know, you know, Dr. Fitch briefly talked about, but how he talked about, and he also talks about in the book, how it pretty much was, you know, he was asked to look at foreign policy for the Sanders campaign and then it was just never contacted again. So it was sort of this, you know, we all we all know that Bernie Sanders' foreign policy is in a big deal with him, and really across the board. If you look at the you know Democratic primaries, um, you know foreign policy has been absolutely absent. So again, I think that sort of speaks more volume to the fact that Americans generally don't really care about foreign policy. So it's 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 this very odd place where this sort of system that's been the bedrock of, you know, American foreign policy for the last 30 years is sort of under attack across the globe or across the board. But I also don't think it's going to change, you know, dramatically over the next 10 to 20 years. I think it's really a long-term thing to be quite frank, um, because I think there's a lot of people um, in government and in just the policy area that still believe heavily in this system and think that it's done very well. And I generally think it has. I think there are certain areas of this system that have generally 
you know, gone bad, but you can't chalk that up to, you know, a single event or single policy that has kind of led us down this road to where it is. And again, I personally think this, you know, the current system has to evolve to the point where there can be prosperity at home, but also there's also influence. There's still, you know, U.S. influence. I think that's important because, you know, I think the most obvious example for me is when the United States after World War One, you know, the, the League of Nations, which was obviously, you know, failure across the board, the United States, well, whatever, Europe, you started this war, you deal with it, we're going to go back to the Roaring Twenties, and we all know how that went. So, you know, as different state or with great power states um, withdraw from the global others, people move in to fill that void, make no mistake, I think, you know, one of the interesting things going on right now is China and their expanding influence, whether through the one belt, one road uh, economic policy, um, where China is investing tons of money in Africa and Europe and all these different places, and also Chinese naval expansion, in the South China Sea and the Bay of Bengal and the Indian Ocean um, in order to secure its oil lines to the Middle East. You know, we're seeing that uh, in place. So, I mean, it's this very interesting place the United States is in right now where you have powers rising to fill the void um, and people in government trying to check the influence of it, but also people back home are very dissatisfied with the current system. So it's this kind of clash going on right now. It'll be interesting to see sort of what happens with the upcoming election. Cause I mean, I think regardless of who gets elected, the same sort of rhetoric regarding foreign policy and the way that things have been done in the last 30 years um, is go- is under attack. And, and whether it'll change, I think, is certainly up for debate. But I think it's one of those things that'll be one of the more interesting aspects of kind of the United States in the world um, as we kind of head into this new decade and over the next 20 to 30 years, really. Um uh, just so to wrap up, uh, definitely go follow us at History Does You. Give us a review, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. Um, your feedback is always super important. And if there's a specific uh, historical event or period of history that you want me to focus on, uh, please leave me a message on Anchor or email me. Um, you know, I can definitely track down an expert in that field and we can have a frank conversation um, because honestly, I'm learning just as much as probably you guys are. So. Um, again, I definitely want to thank you guys for the listenership. Um, and this is probably one of my favorite episodes so far. So thanks for the listen.